changing things up tonight and you're listening to Travis Bristow. I am your host and co-host. We are going to throw to David and Warren at some point throughout the evening. But before we do, guys, um, this is a very different way of doing it. Uh, I'm going to run through some information for the November pack of beers that we have uh, we have coming up next month. This is our last October session. Who would have thought that... Um, We'd gotten through October. It's, uh, it's been an epic month, but next month is going to be far more epic with uh, Mr. Banks, uh, Vault City from Edinburgh coming on for their sour beers that they have. If you guys out there in listening land haven't heard of these guys, uh, check out their stuff. It's going to be uh, pretty amazing. Um, plus, then we also have Moondog coming on in November as well. If you want one of those packs, there's not many left. And you need to jump on the Cool Room Facebook page and Shopify page to secure your pack. Um, it's uh, it's going to be an epic, epic month. And uh, it's going to be a blast heading to the end of the year with some of those breweries. Um, tonight, we are talking to Three Ravens. Um, as David outlined in some of the Facebook posts, it's amazing that we're over 100 episodes in. We are on episode 109 and we've never had these guys on the podcast, um, which is very cool that uh, at uh, episode 109, they're, uh, they're coming on and joining us. We're going to take some epic beers tonight. I'm going to throw over to David Griffiths. He's going to take us through the first beer rather than me this evening, which uh, is a little bit of a different way of doing it. Uh, David, over to you. I hope that comes. I was. I've been waiting to do that a little bit, mate. Um, how are you tonight? It's a, it's a bizarre weather night in Melbourne. We love to always inform our listeners about the weather that we're living through. It's a, it's a bit of a rip snorter tonight. The rain was pelting down on the ceiling windows before we started recording, and uh, I think it's easing up, which means that's, we shouldn't have any power outages. That's a ridiculous truism. Like weather in Melbourne, it's. I, I just think. There's no such thing as weird weather in Melbourne. It well, just Warren is Wilkes the weather. Chimed in early as well, and have, yeah. here was me thinking. Here was me thinking I was going to introduce Brendan and Jeff. I'm going to introduce Brendan first of all. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, an honour to have you guys on. I can't believe it's taken so long. Um, I hope you're excited about being on the show with us tonight. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, always love talking about beer and yeah i uh, appreciate your work and yeah love, love everything you've been doing so really really cool to be here awesome thank you for that and and um jeff I, I believe we've met before we'll talk a little bit more about that along the way um i'm properly excited to have you on the show tonight man i'm looking forward to telling a few old war stories uh me too david I, I, to be honest it's been i've felt it's been a little bit of a a, a missing piece in my heart to not have been on the Cool Room podcast up until this point. So I, I'm really delighted to be here and um, yeah, look forward to sharing some more stories and, and other stories as well. Thanks for having us. That's fantastic. I'm going to do a little bit of Travis's work and say, if you could perhaps come a little bit closer to the mic or something, you're just a little bit far away. You've probably got 
18 heritage guitars between you and the microphone, but we'll talk a bit more about that along the way as well. Um, we've got three delicious beers, four delicious beers, I really should say tonight, to taste. Um, so just to give people a bit of an idea about where we're going to be going, we're going to be kicking off with the Mandarin Juicy, then we're going to go to the 55 uh, APA, then we're going to have the Solera and the Stock Ale. So if for some reason you found the podcast version rather than the Zoom Room version, and welcome to everyone who's in the Zoom Room, um, just pause, grab those beers. You can. I think we've only got three packs left in the online store. The I've got to say the Three Ravens online store is amazing. Go and check that out. You can get all of the beers we're going to talk about and more over there. Um, make sure you have them before you listen to this episode. It's designed as a bit of a, a, a sip along so that you can experience the, uh, the drinks that we're talking about while we're having them. Um, we do this little thing now where we, rather than me introducing you, we get you to introduce each other, which um, often just sets up this little bit of tension and unhappiness between our two guests to kick off with. Um, I'm going to throw to you, Jeff. Jeff, can you introduce Brendan? Tell us when you guys first met. Can you tell us what you reckon his favourite non-Three Ravens beer is? And I kind of hope you get it wrong because that's just going to set up a little bit of tension for the night to come. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely help with that. So Brendan and I first back met back in Western Australia. Uh, we were both working for Connected Businesses in WA. Um now, that was, sounds like something the mafia runs, mate. That sounds like you know when you don't want to name what you're actually doing. It's it's concreting, it's it's cranes, it's um, disposal of things that people don't want found. You, you, you obviously understand the, the West Australian business landscape, David, because you're on the right track there, buddy. Um, yeah, so I was working for Phoenix Beers, who are an importer and distributor. Um, Brendan had worked for Phoenix in in some capacity, but. At the time that I met him, he was actually managing uh, a place called the International Beer Store, which was uh, one of the real, really one of the first major craft beer retailers in Australia, um, and they had a really strong online presence. So Brendan was running running that particular store, and Phoenix Beers and the International Beer Shop were were closely connected. They were owned by the same person, so that's how we met. Um, what when I met Brendan, he was a really accomplished home brewer already, and he, and in fact he was a lot further down the path of learning about craft beer than I was. Um, and so from from the very first time I met Brendan, I really admired his his passion and his knowledge for beer. Um, mm. And I would have to say I, I've considered Brendan to be a mentor of mine ever since I met him. Um, on Brendan's favourite three non three Ravens beer. I would have to say a beer, the beer that stands out and the beer that he always raved about to me was a beer called, um, it was by a brewery called Gage Roads and it was called Bolt. Uh, it was a low calorie um, mid-strength lager in a clear glass bottle. Um, I don't know why it didn't take off that particular beer, but I know Brendan always loved that. Now, yeah. I feel like there's a bit of a throwdown there. So, Brendan, yeah, feel free to respond, mate. Take us through. Don't respond to the beer thing straight away, perhaps. Let's hear a bit of your backstory when your first memory of Jeff. Let's start with that. I think it was, I think it was around 2009. Um, I remember. So I'd been working for Phoenix for probably five years, five or six years before that. Um, and there was there was some like 
some staff that stuck around, some that came and went. And um, to be honest, when Jeff walked through the doors of the international beer shop and introduced himself, he was very upbeat. He was very idealistic. He'd come from selling guitars. Uh, and I just thought, oh, yeah, here's another one. Um, see how long he lasts. Um, but, yeah, he became a very good friend and I loved, loved his enthusiasm and, uh, yeah, I was happy to take him under, under my wing. I love um, sharing knowledge um, just as I love having people share knowledge with me. I think you've got to give to receive. So um, have really enjoyed uh, the friendship I've had with Jeff over the years and we've fortunately been able to, to work together again a few years ago. So, yeah, pretty, pretty interesting um, journey we both had. Uh, but it was a very long time ago and we both, I guess, identify with, with growing up in WA and so I've um, always kind of shared a lot of a lot of uh, common uh, mentalities and upbringings and uh, and enthusiasm for similar beer styles. Um, Do you want to have a crack at what his favourite non three Ravens beer is? I mean, I um yeah I I, I guess he's I probably changed mind. his mind after my suggestion about his favourite. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's I know I know that like his his preferred style is pale ale. So I'm I'm re- I really want to say something in that. I feel like that's probably the most accurate. And I did check his untapped um, to see how many. Oh, well, the most. <laughs> so before before I um, before I come to that, I think the the runners up for me were were Saison de Pont. Uh, I know he's a big fan of Saison. Uh, Cantillon Lupe Pepe Frambois seems yeah. to ring true or something that he's a big fan of, and probably rates above anything else. So that's probably the probably the real one. Um, Schlinkiller Martin, I'd say is up there, but I don't think that's it. But Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is what I'm locking in. Yep. Is that is that right? And not the torpedo? Yeah, look, I think, do you know what? I feel like it would have changed over the years where there would have been a time where torpedo would have been the beer I'd go for. But I think as time has gone by, I really prefer to drink at lower ABBs. Um, and so I probably would preferably pull the pale ale off the shelf rather than the torpedo. And I guess, look, this is part of the reason why I've asked to go first up tonight. You, you and I have a long history of running beer events together. Yep. It must be, truth, the best bit of 10 years or more now. Um, I have my own version of when we first ran an event together, but what's your memory of the first time we met and had a beer together? Because it might be quite helpful for me to remember Something well, I, can, I can actually tell you exactly where it was, David. So I was doing, I was working in the capacity of a beer sales rep and I was doing a sales call at the Courthouse Hotel in North Melbourne is what I was doing. And I must have been talking to the, the manager at the time at the, at the, at the courthouse and um, I believe you were having a beer in the front bar there and you must have it's overheard. plausible, yes. <laughs> you must have overheard something that, piqued your interest and uh, you came up and introduced yourself and I, I feel like kind of the rest is history from that point onwards Dave do, do you recall that I, I I genuinely don't remember that bit I remember the first sort of ever beer event that I think I've run which was out the back room at the Flimken Bowls Club when we had uh, torpedo cans and bottles and just Sierra Nevada uh, pale ale cans and bottles all blind tastings with only about 12 people um 
which you were part of, but that's the first time I've sort of remember ever doing a beer event. Do you remember us doing a, an event before that? It's funny. So you don't remember the Courthouse, Courthouse Hotel event. I do not recall the Flem Ken event. I so I do recall that from from the from that meeting at the Courthouse Hotel, you were very keen to chat and and I I do know that from that meeting and from that exchange of details that um, that we did catch up and that we did stock Flemken up with some really really great great beer and and awesome beers. Shout out to Flemken as well. It's it's a pretty common thing now in Melbourne for bowls clubs to have a great selection of craft beers. Uh, and they're all inviting barefoot bowlers to come and, and do the do at their at the clubs. But definitely Flemken and and it was your work, David, that got the beers in. Uh, Flemken was certainly oh, oh, okay. You got the fifty, mate. You don't have to keep working for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Flemken, yeah, really, they they got there. So uh, that's what I recall. I actually don't recall the event at Flemken, Dave. How funny is that? I remember being very low key and me thinking no one would come and everyone coming and it sort of working. And that was the first one. But yeah, we, we did a lot of other things and together and uh, particularly at Mr. Griffiths in Kensington, where you were very generous with your time, sometimes with enormous crowds of people. Yep. Sometimes with three or four of us around a table on a Sunday sometimes, afternoon. Sometimes Blake was really lifting the uh, atmosphere of the event, uh, I recall. So um, yeah, look, some of those, I, I actually really loved doing those blind tasting events at Mr. Griffiths. I, I found it a real challenge um, for myself in terms of learning how to present um, in, a, you know, in a way that people enjoy, but I also found it really enjoyable reaching out to my peers in the industry um, to find the best products that we could get for each individual category. So for, for anyone who doesn't know what those events were, were like, we, we based them around certain beer styles and we had a blind tasting event where we would just explore flights of an individual style. So I recall we did Saison's, we did Brown Ales. Do you, do you remember some, I think we did, I don't know how many we did, Dave. We did Brands and Reds. I mean, I genuinely remember that um, having the buzz from Hop Nation and that was, you know, we're now talking many moons ago and just sort of, because I didn't know what beers they were going to be, I reevaluated what I thought. That's the one I rated highly that day. That's where I really went. Hop Nation is really good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I recall. So yeah, Dave, there's, we have done a lot of work together over the years and I, and I think it is close to 10 years. And, and it's funny that that particular meeting in, in, at the courthouse, courthouse hotel, which I don't think does much in the way of craft beer anymore, uh, was where we actually... I'm not even sure it's still open, brother, but, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Just just to interject, the strange thing is I reckon Three Ravens had all the taps at the courthouse when I first went in there. Like, it was only Three Ravens on tap. So, yeah, funny little circle. Like, And that, that was back in the day where Three Ravens did English, like mainly English ales and bitters. They were one of our earliest customers. Gotcha. Hmm. Funny. Well, I, I just sort of had to shout that out because for everyone who's sort of come on board my journey along the way, um, Jeff genuinely plays a big part of that because without his support and efforts in um, letting me have enormously silly beers at a bowls club back at a time when no one was serving those, um, none of this would have happened. So that's why I wanted to go front up tonight. That's why I wanted to introduce Jeff. That's why I want to speak to Jeff and Brendan about, well, we have 
genuinely all these international listeners. Um, Jeff will understand the code if I say um, there's this Norwegian brewery, which has been listening in for a long time, associated with Phoenix, who I think I've secured more beer from than I have money for, for March next year. So we're going to be around for a long time. Um, let's not sidetrack ourselves with that. We have international listeners. Which one of you guys would like to paint a little bit of a picture about where Three Ravens is, what it looks like, what the tap room looks like, sell it to our local people, but sell it as a destination for people who are coming into Melbourne? Don't take this one, Jeff. Well, you've got a picture of the bar behind you, so it seems appropriate. <laughs> uh, I guess I don't know how far, we, how, far, how far back you want to go, but we started in 2003 uh, as a uh, hobby in the basement, which is actually the room behind me in the picture. Um, it was a bunch of engineers that loved beer, um, loved drinking real ale, uh, were all very eclectic and creative engineers. That was one of their hiring strategies was to get the weirdo engineers because they thought they did better engineering work. Um, they, it's, a, it's a really long story that involves brothels and equipment from CSL and um, a lot of variations on stories, but essentially one of their, one of their recruits uh, wanted to start a brewery with the equipment they had in the, out in the yard that they'd pilfered from CSL and Dairy uh, clients. Allegedly. Let's just whack some allegedly into that sentence. <laughs> oh, legally pilfered. <laughs> um, they, I'm they not just... sure there's any such thing. I think pilfered actually has a... <laughs> I feel like we're going to need a disclaimer on this episode. <laughs> uh, anyway, they cobbled together a brewery um, and started making beer under the, the banner of Three Ravens, mostly so that they could drink it in the Pleasure Palace, which was their private bar, um, they wanted to drink real ale. They loved going to the Brandon in North Carlton and drinking hand pump beer there. Um, at one point, the Brandon changed hands and the, the new owner, um, who we call Bubbles, um, wanted to, decided he was getting rid of all the cask stuff. So the, the engineers bought that, uh, moved it over to uh, Three Ravens and started using it to make uh, cask conditioned uh, real ales um, so they could hand pump bitter and, and um, old beer and stuff in their pub. So they had a, a couple of customers for the first few years, but um, it was very much a hobby. Um, they scaled up in 2005-ish to the kit that we now use with the help of Marcus Cox. Um, expanded their range to six beers, very traditional European style, but with a slight twist. Uh, that was pretty extreme uh, back in the early to mid-noughties um, over time. Those styles evolved and interests changed. Um, a lot of engineers came and went. Essentially, it was never making money um, for the first 14 years. So it was uh, a labor of love and passion. Um, we're lucky that our original director and founder, Peter Fitzgerald, loved the company after that he, that he kept it going. Um, other engineers came and went. There was up to 10 or 12 owners at one point, but it, it, it went back to a couple. Um, we now have two owners. So Fitzy maintained his chair and um, joined by another partner in about 2014, 2013. Uh, since then, we've expanded our capacity, uh, renovated quite a bit, um, installed a bar, uh, rejuvenated our range due to waning interest in those traditional beer styles. Um, since I've joined the team in 2014, we've introduced single batch series, barrel aging, wild beer, 
uh, kettle sours, lagers, uh, a whole range of things. It's been a, a pretty wild ride um, in the seven years that I've been with Ravens. Uh, but in, in officially or formally in 2018, we rebranded, um, modernised the brand and modernised the range. Uh, so the Pills Not Be Tried was one of the kind of the, the, the beers that led that revival towards modern Australian beer styles. Um, but we expanded into a whole range of different um, styles and flavours, uh, I guess, celebrating or, or uh, utilising my enthusiasm for, for everything and anything, um, as well as everything I've learned over the years, um, but also carrying, carrying the torch of what Three Ravens was in the beginning, which was about pushing boundaries and brewing left of centre beers and things that are a bit weird and wonderful. Uh, but I've got to say, writing the questions tonight, it's a really interesting task com compared to when we normally write questions for, say, a brewery that's been around for four or five years who are still doing the thing they set out to do. Three Ravens is very clearly an organisation which has gone through different iterations. And, you know, what you're hinting at there is, you know, there's all these different styles. It's an amazing array of beers that you guys have. I'd always had the ambition to uh, brew um, an eclectic range of like just push boundaries and beer styles, uh, really get it out of my system before retiring to a farm to brew mixed ferment, which is kind of a, a dream that I adopted very young. It's probably as a, in my late teens that I wanted to retire to a farm to make lambic style beers. But before then, I knew that I needed to get everything out of my system. So I guess Three Ravens has been an opportunity for me to... Um, brew everything questionable and, and um, brew various styles. But uh, there became a point where I realised that, that I was aligned with uh, Fitzy. Uh, yeah, I thought I was co-opting the brewery for my own designs and desires, but I realised after a while that it was what Brewery Evans was about all along. So it was a nice uh, realisation. I'm not going to do what my co-hosts co normally do when they have the first chair of the night, which is steal all the good questions because um, I've got I've got so many questions I want to ask about all the things you're talking about, but I want to bring us back really specifically to the the Mandarin juicy. So we've got three juices in the tasting pack. Check out their cool room Shopify if you haven't already. Um, the Mandarin it, it is so Mandarin in a really positive sense. It's got that little bit of early bite. It's got that sort of gentle mandarin flavor going through um can you t tell us how this fits into the juicy range how the juicy range works overall um it's a pretty amazing beer and i think you've almost got i grew up with mandarins it was what my when i walked in from school mum handed me a mandarin as i walked in the door it's got a little bit of that australianness about it yeah, my, um, my neighbour down the road, my best mate as a kid, had a mandarin tree, so we had them all the time. I wasn't particularly fond of them as a kid, um, but it's such a distinct character. I think as I got older, I really enjoyed mandarins, and particularly mandarin juice. Um, there's a really, I can't remember the brand, but there's a brand I found in, when I moved to Melbourne um, that was just incredible, like so much better than orange juice. Um, the idea for this, I guess, came about with the... Uh, the, the Australian Hopper Clips, uh, 016 as it was before that. Um, I guess we designed beers around a number of things, namely raw materials that we can get a hold of. So building flavours together. Um, and there was this really interesting uh, Australian Hopper 016, which has now been called Eclipse, that had a really distinct Mandarin character. So for us, that was a, an obvious thing to lean into with the Ju Juicy series, um, having a love of 
mandarins as well um, to, to really highlight that mandarin character of that hop as well as some other uh, some other hops that had similar characteristics um, and really just um, amplify as much mandarin as we could um, from various angles. In terms of the juicy series, do you want to take that one, Jeff? Uh, well, can I just ask one quick question before I throw to you, Jeff, which is the, the eclipses in the pack. We're not going to talk about it tonight, but for people who want to pause the podcast, which is the whole idea and sort of experience ones, what would you say about the eclipse? What's going to be the difference that people will experience if they have the Mandarin and the eclipse next to each other? Well, it's actually when we got the eclipse, the new season eclipse hops, which we hadn't seen yet, we've been using the previous crop um, for some NPD and some trial beers. When we got the, the latest crop um, to brew the Mandarin Juicy, we opened the bag and it, it blew our minds. It was just so vibrant and intense and, and just an, another level up from the, the previous crop. Um, so at that point, we, re we, we really knew that that was going to be the next single hop um, release. So it was the, the process of doing the Mandarin Juicy that we decided that Eclipse needed to be celebrated on its own. Um, but I guess the, in terms of the beer, the, different, the, the main difference is just the, the clean, you know, the, the focus of the, the body and the malt being really lean and light. And, you know, it's got the juiciness and the, the texture, um, but with the celebration of every aspect of what Eclipse is about, the type of bitterness that Eclipse provides, the flavour, the distinct aromatics, um, the way that we hop um, in, in five stages means you do get quite a complex hop character. Um, it's not, not simply the, you know, the dry hop character of Eclipse or the kettle hop character of Eclipse, which, which do present very differently. It's a, a really um, complex um, array of flavours derived from Eclipse being used in different ways. We're going to come back to a bit more about those processes, things in a moment. But Jeff, and I'm really conscious that I'm using up my, I'm using an enormous amount of time here at the beginning. But um, Jeff, can I, when you get thrown sort of questions about the juicy series, how does it work as a series? How do you go out and about with this as a man who's got to sell beer? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I guess for our juicy series and, um, you know, it was really one of the first New England IPAs on the market in Australia. It was certainly in the first handful of commercially available New England IPAs on the market. Um, it does make my job a little bit easier to be able to go to customers and say, hey, look, this is really an icon. This is a pioneer. And probably more to the point, the person on the other side of the bar has confidence to order that particular product. It's something they fam they're familiar with and that they know. Um, and so it holds... And look, and Dave, you, you'd know this as well. I, I, I feel like uh, in any given style uh, and even for craft beer itself, people really remember their first and the beer that helped them discover craft beer holds a place in their heart forever. And it's, it's always revered in that kind of way. And so I feel like our juicy New England IPA um, it actually holds that place in a lot of people's hearts out there where this was the first experience that they had of New England IPAs. Um, and it kind of makes my job a little bit easier in that regard because it is such a highly revered New England IPA. Um, so I'd say that's probably, you know, a, a real advantage that I've got uh, for that particular beer. But I think the other thing about our Juicy and in, in particular our standard Juicy is it's not really just haze for haze sakes. Um, I think probably has a lot more in common with some of the originators of New England IPA, for instance, Hetty Topper, where it's, 
it's a moderate haze and it has that emphasis on flavor, on the hot flavor and aroma is what it is. Um, whereas you do see a lot of New England IPAs, and this is by no means me being critical about other beers, but there are a lot of New England IPAs that have a really sort of chalky uh, appearance and quite often quite a chalky sort of flavor as people are straving, or, you know, is my, is my hazy IPA hazy enough? You know, that's really not what the game is here. The game is is that body. It's about that hot flavour and aroma. It, the game isn't to make your beer as opaque as it possibly can be. Um, so I feel like I've got a few key advantages uh, over competitors in that way. I've got to say, this sounds like a really good point to start to prepare to handball over to the 55 because <laughs> what we're really interested in tasting as, a, as an online tasting experience is those bits where, you know, what's a NEPA, what's an APA? And I think what you've touched on there is that there's similarities and differences. There's there's hops that you could use in both. Uh, there's ways that you can use them. And um, Warren Wu, I'm looking for the heads up for you. You're running alongside me on the wing. I'm about to pass the ball over to you, mate. Um, yeah, yeah, you're looking in the wrong direction. You'll I... never make a <laughs> fly is... half. Oh no, sorry, I've I've gone. Oh, you were right. I'm, I'm this is why we shouldn't change the This is why we shouldn't change stuff because we just go crash that ship. It's just gonna go straight into a reef. Travis, just, Travis, like... heads up, ball over the top, mate. I'm like, and go with I'm it. not go a... with it, Travis. Isn't a good um, idea because I think I'm the least okay. qualified to talk about the last beers. I'm steering this ship back into alignment, and David obviously he's he's got a bit flustered tonight, taking the first beer when he'd normally take take the last beer, and we've changed things up. Um, so for the listeners out there, that, that's just how we roll. Um, but I will steer this ship back home. We are cracking open the fifty-five. APA. If everyone's got it in front of them, let's get things going. There's a there's a heap to talk about with this beer. It's going to be uh, really cool, um, guys. Let let's kick things off talking about this. Um, tell us why you've brewed the 55 in relation to the your 18th birthday celebrations. So we brewed this beer, um, rebrewed it for the first time last year. Um, it's a, it was one of the first uh, hobby beer styles that we brewed. We'd been brewing an old beer and some other stuff that really celebrated hops. But in 2008, um, to celebrate our fifth birthday, um, our head brewer at the time, Marcus Cox, um, developed the 55, uh, which was to celebrate our fifth birthday featuring five hops, five malts, um, and 5.5%. Um, for me, it was one of the very early hobby beers that I tried other than... Uh, probably Little Creatures Pale Ale. Um, it was, um, I guess, the sign of a new direction of, of beer and beer consumption and beer trends in Australia. Um, and it was, uh, it became our flagship over time. It became um, the most desirable and the most interesting and the most, you know, the highest volume beer that we produced. Um, towards the sort of the mid-teens, um, trends had changed quite a bit. Uh, people were looking for lighter, leaner, drier, uh, pale ales so this uh, became a bit of a an outlier in that it was uh, multi-grain um, higher in ABV um, not something that people really appreciated uh, in the in the pub as a draft beer or in it still sold quite well in six packs um, in, in sort of more mainstream bottle shops but 
it was by no means the the workhorse that it, that it had been and, and we could see that, that the trends had changed and that we needed to brew pale ale styles that, that people wanted to drink so this was replaced uh, by our tropical pale ale um, but we also always had a really fun fun place in our heart I did I really enjoyed drinking the 55 and uh, had a re- very fond memory of it growing up um, so it was something that we wanted to rebrew um, occasionally whenever that was appropriate and it just seemed right um, with uh, with the birthday coming up to to release another batch we only do a very small amount of it uh, because it is quite hard to sell given it's 5.5% ABV um, and the, the multi-grain story which uh, I always found at, at beer festivals or, or telling people about it you'd, you'd start talking about rye and corn and people's eyes would glaze over and they'd switch off no one really cared um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it sort of lost relevance, but it, but it was a, a delicious beer that we we loved. So we wanted to celebrate it, and um, I guess that was a, a great opportunity to bring it back. Yeah, nice. That that sounds awesome, guys. Um, let's let's talk about let's go on a bit of a little bit of a tour. Um, can you give us a bit of a guided tour on on this beer from from the look of it right through to sort of the tasting and aromas? We're all sort of sitting here drinking it. And I think we've all got varying degrees of ideas on it and i think uh once you guys tell us about it and for the listeners out there it'll change what they're tasting and and smelling jeff do you want to talk about apa in general as a style and the the pale ale and pale ale where it came from i mean i suppose the genesis of pale ale is it's probably a well-told story but um you know obviously english pale owls um you know, it's a it's a storied style. It's a it's a um, traditional style, and and they they had their place. But you know, the real leap of faith for or or the real genesis of the American pale ale style was obviously Sierra Nevada pale ale, um, which is as Dave said, it's a beer that holds a place in my heart. Um, and so it goes back to Sierra Nevada pale ale and Ken Grossman. He um, he wanted to he wanted to change the beer landscape and and. I think he had access, he ran a homebrew shop. And so he had access to new hop varieties and, and heaps of hops. And, um, and he wanted to really create something new and vibrant and different. And he saw the potential of these new hop varieties and what they can do and how he could use them in different ways. Um, I feel like what's easy for us to forget in today's craft beer landscape uh, is that you know, craft is ubiquitous now. It's all around us. We understand what it tastes like. We know what to expect. Uh, but you, if we look back to that Ken Grossman time where he had to go out back out to the marketplace and present to people a beer that tasted very, very different to what they taste, what most beer tastes like on the market, it was actually an enormous leap of faith for him to be able to do that. Um, I feel like for people like Brendan and myself today, we've got we're really standing on the shoulders of giants to use that old phrase where um, all the groundwork's been laid for us and we're actually able to go out to the market and say, hey, we're just pushing this along a little bit further. And I feel like that's what we do as a brewery. We push things along a little bit further all the time. Uh, and Brendan's, Brendan's the reason behind that. He's, he's the person driving that. Um, to bring it back to our 55 Pale Ale and what I get out of this particular beer um, what I really admire about this beer, and it's interesting because a, an American pale ale is really typified by hop character, but what I really admire about this beer is 
is actually the malt character um, and the graininess of it. I get a really, really pleasing. And actually, I'll take it back. When I drink Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, the thing that jumps out to me is I find it's got this extremely nourishing malt quality. The, the malts in it are actually really full and present and actually remind me more to a certain extent of foodstuffs and really high quality artisanal oh, foodstuffs. Yeah. Um, and so this particular beer, and, and Brendan's taken it one step further, I think the use of the flaked corn in this beer and the rye in, rye in this beer, Brendan? It's always had five grains. So it's always had um, rice, corn, sorry, not rice, uh, rye, corn, wheat, barley, uh, is that five? And oats. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I find that graininess really, really comes through. And I think it gives, you know, it's probably a bit of a trope about the spice of rye, but I feel like it's got a really spicy, grainy quality that I really admire. Um, and it, this is probably not, I don't think everyone agrees with this, but the, the hop character that I get off our 55 Pale Ale is quite a berryish hop character. I get this really, really pleasing berry quality that I uh, associate with actually traditional English pale ales. I get some of the English hop varieties. I get a really lovely berryish note off. Uh, and I really get this out of the 55 pale ale as well. I think what you said about the origins of Kingaroos and a pale ale are really representative of why we started brewing it, why it came about. The reason it had five hops in it, Marcus has uh, has said was that hop contracts didn't exist. There was no security of varieties. That was a really tenuous market. Varieties came and went. Um, so for him to brew a pale ale that had some semblance of consistency, he used five different hops. So if one ran out or was unavailable, he could slot something else in and, and maintain a pale ale that was still fairly similar. Um, so it was out of necessity more than, uh, you know, a desire to have uh, an extreme number of ingredients. Um, I guess the five grains was was more a novelty than anything, and, and uh, Marcus was buying a lot of the grains back then from the the local uh, pet food store, um, horse feed and the likes, because it was it was pretty hard to get uh, you know a variety of uh, raw materials and grains uh, back in two thousand and eight. Um, so yeah, really, uh, it's, it's a really fun story and a cool beer to inherit. I. Um, the recipe originally was was it wasn't too far from where it is today. The 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 five grains are still there, although the 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 uh, the way that we add them or that the means to which we add them are a little bit different. Whereas we used to use sort of malted oats or um, golden naked oats in the past. This one has some golden naked oats, but rolled oats as well. Um, the rye we used to use malted rye, but I now use um, rolled rye. Um, because I find that's got a little bit more of the texture and the spiciness um, that you want from rye. Malting essentially degrades the stuff that you're adding rye for, the, the protein and the beta-glucan. So my preference is for, for rolled rye. Um, maize, we actually use some, some malted corn from Gladfield, which has only been around for a couple of years. And it's, it's incredible the flavour um, you get from this, this malted corn. It's, it's so much above and beyond the, the cornflakes um, that we had access up until a couple of years ago. Um, so very, very lucky to have um, Gladfield as one of our key suppliers of, of interesting ingredients. Uh, and the, I guess the nourishing quality, the biscuity malts, uh, Voyager uh, in, in Riverina are probably my favourite malt supplier. We've got 
Gladfield, Voyager and uh, Coopers as our main malt suppliers. And Voyager's, um, their dedication to quality malt and heritage varieties and freshness is above none in our, in our region. Um, for us to be able to get Vienna and Munich malts toasted to order, delivered within weeks, if not days of it being malted, means that we get we, with those flavours, those fresh biscuity malty flavours translate to the beer. Uh, so we're yeah we're very lucky to be in an era where we have a, a farm to farm to malt company supplying premium malts that we can celebrate in, in this type of beer. You guys, I'm going to be difficult and cut across here. Going, yep. the kind of terrible human being that I am, but I know because particularly Jeff and I we've we've had debates over the last well I reckon six weeks about the lineup and what beers do we put in what order, and that's been explored in the chat and Trav feel free to explore that but we, we've really we've debated which beers to put in which order haven't we yeah absolutely yeah I, I, you know <clears throat> you quite often uh, conventional wisdom is that you work up you work your way up in ABV um, that's usually a good guide of intensity but I feel like the Mandarin Juicy and the 55 have similar levels intensity of intensity, even though the 55 is slightly lower ABV. Um, I feel like the malt character of 55 sort of drives the flavour along and it makes it quite intense. Um, but, yeah, I think I, I, I really I, I, I value the debate on the chat because, um, yeah, I think it's a conversation worth having. And, and there's no, as always with tasting, there's no right or wrong answers with these sorts of things. It's, totally it's the right. best. Yeah. And, and even before we started the record tonight, we were still having that uh, that discussion on how we were going to approach things tonight and uh, what order we were going to we were going to go in. You guys have uh, you guys have done your homework and read the question list. They have that, uh, David <laughs> sent through. You're pretty much doing all my work for me. It's it's amazing. Um, I'll back off, Trav. Sorry. No, nah. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. It rarely I'll, happens. I was actually going to say, guys, I'm a bit just you've missed a few things. So anyway, we'll move on. We're, oh. just, we're not. We're just, hang on a second. We're not. We're not done yet. We've still got a little bit to go before we uh, have a little bit of a break and and refresh ourselves. Um, this this is probably a, more of a question for Brendan. In relation to like what you were just talking about, in relation to hops, how have things changed sort of since Three Ravens started eighteen years ago to now? Where you know where's it all sort of gone from the hops you could get back then to what you can readily have available now you've got your farm and everything but um give us a bit of a breakdown on how things have shifted yeah, for you guys it is very different um as as marcus alluded to with the 55 hop contracts weren't a thing um so the spot market was tenuous um fluctuations in in uh the commodity market meant that hops came and went and prices went up and down and it was it would have been a nightmare to try and maintain consistent beers. Um, we're, we're so lucky, particularly with HPA in their developments and American hop growers. I don't think that European uh, hop producers have advanced a hell of a lot um, since we started. I think that the, the character and the quality of the hops is still pretty similar. They might have improved marginally um, in terms of their process. But in terms of American development, um, the quality of American hops is insane in terms of the, the cleanliness of, of character and their... Uh, their agronomics and their processing um, and, the, and the same with Australian hops like HPA I guess has been the, the major game changer for most Australian breweries over the last um, 15 years has been you know the, the discovery of Galaxy and then the, the breeding of other hops from that 
Um, that's really changed what we can do in Australia and how we can own um, our raw materials and brew Australian styles. Uh, so that's that's been a massive a massive change. I think alpha uh, alpha acids uh, oils have increased over time, um, but the major difference I've seen is in processing in how the hops are grown on the farm in terms of attention to detail in, in agronomics and what what works where. Um, the ripening, the harvesting, how they're harvested, how they're processed, um, the degree and temperature to which they're killed, um, and, and the way they're packaged has made a big difference on storageability and, and how the hops translate to, to beer. Um, so that's been that's been really cool for us, I think. Uh, and in this product, that's been, I guess, a big difference too. Like over time, we we started using things like um, Heller and Big Secret, uh, Mosaic for a while. Yep. Citra, I guess, is like a, a one we've been using for the last few years, but was never in the earlier iterations. Early on, this beer had Willamette, which is wonderful, very um, English-style American hop, but kind of spicy. Um, early on, there was Simcoe. I think Galaxy was always a big part of it, um, and Simcoe. Um, Amarillo was probably in there as well. Um, when I joined Three Ravens, Nelson Sabin was part of the lineup, and I, I'm a big fan of that hop, so I, I kind of brought that back when we rebrewed it, but talking to Marcus Cox, he hated uh, Nelson Seven, so it definitely wasn't part of the, the 55 in the early days. Um, hot contracts, I guess, have been the, a, a big development. Big change, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's essential for, for any brewery to contract if, if they want security of, of um, varieties. Uh, that's that's key. Um, for us, we've, we've been looking more into the quality of each farm and, and really trying to, to look as far as we can into where each batch of hops is coming from um, to figure out which farms we prefer and which ones to avoid. Um, using using uh, some wholesalers, you often get a, the same variety from a, a variety of producers. So uh, I think it's worth paying attention to um, quality from batch to batch and, and producer to producer to figure out what, what you like and what suits your process. It's definitely been um, yeah, something that we're always mindful of and focusing on and uh, trying to get that transparency through to exactly where our product's coming from. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. That's um, yeah, that's really cool. Um, we are getting close to wrapping up on the APA. Before we do though, um, two more questions. What's the what's the public's expectations been of this type of style? Maybe it's in a maybe it's a comparison thing between the first time you brewed it and, and now, how's that sort of shifted for you? I'd be good on for Jeff. I think the, the public perception, I think, um, yeah, we moved more towards the Pacific style eventually because we saw that's where that's where trends were going. Um, how did you say, Jeff? Yeah, look, I mean, I feel like, yeah, I think trend is the key word here. I, I feel like um, beers, beers which may have been categorized as APAs a number of years ago, uh, we're probably IPAs. And so it's, it's changed. I think probably Hop Hog's a great example where, um, you know, it was labelled as an IPA, but then it kept w- winning the strong parallel category and the yep. AIPAs. Uh, I think probably another example is our New World IPA, which is our core range West Coast IPA, uh, recently won, or probably, uh, re- I say recently, covid time lapse thing but um when was that brendan that was two years ago it won the cbia best pale ale category um so there's a lot of i suppose there's a lot of um wash over between those two categories um and then 
Sorry, Brendan? Last year, 2020. Uh, it was last year, yeah. Um, so what I would say is that there's a couple of things going on, which is the other thing is fashion. So I feel like in terms of fashion for beer, um, things that the, the tendency has been to move away from a balance between malt and bitterness and, and some hot flavour and aroma. And over time, we've gradually moved towards... Um, lower bitterness, higher hop flavour and aroma. And what that means is that the kind of our definitions have become a little bit irrelevant. Um, you know, I think of an example also, of, for instance, um, Pirate Life Pale Ale, when that launched, that was arguably an IPA, um, but it was labelled as an APA. So I think as time goes on, the what's printed on the can, whether it's American Parallel or West Coast IPA is becoming less relevant. Uh, and it's actually just more about how the beer presents. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting take on it. I actually like that idea. It's whether or not we ever get to that point where you just pick up a beer can and it's... Well, that, that's a thing. That on it. There's really no one policing it. The only, yeah, the, only, yeah. the only thing that's policing it is people's expectations being met. For They've pulled a beer off the shelf and it says IPA. Were their expectations met? And it, so that will determine whether that beer is successful or not. Um, it, there's no one, there's no overarching body that is keeping an eye on things and going, excuse me, Craft Brewery X, you can't write IPA on that because it's not quite high ABV or you can't write APA on that because it's too strong or... So that's, really... that's an interesting take, Jeff. So from a marketing perspective, before we move on to our traditional cool room question, yep. if you guys brewed this beer as an APA, labelled it as an APA and then brewed it the same beer and labelled it as an IPA, how would you see, would there be a... Could you turn around and go, oh, people are going to just go for the IPA version of it rather than the APA version of it? It's a good question. I, I mean, I think I think consumer behaviour, more people are going to pull the American Pale Ale off the shelf or they're going to, they're going to pull the Pale Ale off the shelf because I think there's a bigger market for Pale Ale than there is for IPA. Um, then the next question is, were their expectations met and will they buy it again? Yep. That's, that's really the key. Um, the same beer labelled as an IPA on the shelf, smaller market, but does it meet their expectations? Possibly not. So that, that's really what's at the heart of it. So, and like I said, I think the key thing is, is that there's, there's no one policing, you know, we, we, you know what, we could brew this beer and we could write Gosa on it. There's no one stopping us from doing that. Yeah. But the market's going to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's not a gosa. Um, so that's 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 the policeman, really. And and I wonder if that's one of those things of late where you walk up to a beer fridge and every label is different. You know, how many people are buying their beer, you know, based on the style of beer rather than based on the label that they're looking at? Everyone buys with their eyes. It's it's quite an interesting, interesting take on things. It's yeah. It's a combination of both. I think, you know, people have an idea of which style they'd like to take home that night. Um, and then they look at those styles because I think, and, you know, there's probably a few retailers on the chat tonight. You know, how do they lay out their store? Do they lay it out in style? Do they lay it out by brand? What are they doing? But I think um, people might have an expectation of what style they'd like to take home. 
and then they look at the labels and which one which one are they compel and i think increasingly people might have an idea of what style they want to take home and rather than looking at the labels they look at what's printed on the bottom and find the fresh one i or, think that as Corey just pointed out in the zoom room we uh we take all our marketing advice from david and what he packages up in our uh, our cool room <laughs> packs per month and i think that's a good way to do it as well um <laughs> jeff brendan I can't believe this is the first time we're asking you our traditional cool room question. I feel like the last few weeks and probably the last month, we've had uh, the cool room question being asked by people we've asked it to before. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a fun time to be <laughs> asking it for the first time. And, and, um, and Travis, Travis, I just really feel like I've got to say to Jeff, please don't talk about any of the venues that I've owned or run before when you answer this question. Uh, there was this bloke, there was this bloke, Mr. X ran the most deplorable cool room you've ever seen. Uh, check notes. No, David, you're in, you're in the clear, buddy. I thought we'd just be able to beep out David's name when you started talking about him, Jeff. So That'd be good as well. As long as, we've, as long as we're all starting from the same point. You're in the clear. Um, so my cool room story is actually... Uh, so I haven't even asked the question yet, and he's already on it. <laughs> he's, read the, he's read the questions. I mean, this is fantastic. Sorry, After 109 <laughs> episodes, we've finally got someone who read the questions. Yeah, like someone ask me the question, please. All right, I've, got, I've got to ask it, partly, Jeff, because normally I don't get to ask this question. Um, this question normally fall, falls to Warren to ask. So, um, God, and this is for both of you. We'll get, we'll get both your stories. I can see Brendan sitting there just waiting patiently for the question to come out. It's, um, what's, what's the most confronting, strange, amusing, rude, offensive thing you've ever seen in a cool room that doesn't involve Mr. David Griffiths thingies? <laughs> Thank uh, you, Travis. So, so mine is actually, it's probably more about the absence of a cool room rather than a cool room, my one. So um, I supplied a keg of, so uh, New Zealand Brewery Renaissance, uh, I supplied a keg of their Renaissance Elemental Porter to a venue that will remain nameless. Um, and they phoned me and they said, Jeff, your keg has exploded. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. It was a 30 litre disposable keg, so not a steel keg. Uh, and I said, so I apologised. And I said, look, I'm really, really sorry about the exploding keg. Um, let me supply you another keg free of charge. So I sent them a replacement keg free of charge. And then the next day they rang up and they said, Jeff, you won't believe it. The kegs exploded again. <laughs> all over the walls, all over the floor, all over the roof of the venue. Uh, and I couldn't believe the terrible luck that they were having. I, I had couldn't work out what and being a good sales rep i said look i'm going to come over i'm going to help you clean up this awful mess that these kegs are making uh so i went to the venue and i was helping them clean up and i was like how is this happening why are these kegs exploding and so i had a little look at their system and i was like so where do you store these kegs and they showed me where they stored the kegs and mm. Lo and behold, they were storing these disposable kegs right alongside the exhaust fan for the fridge um, so what they were doing is they were basically putting these kegs next to a reasonably gentle heat source. And so the moral of the story is, is do not store your disposable kegs next to even the most gentle heat source because 
they will explode and they will cover your whole venue with 30 litres of very brown porter. Uh, and there's bits of shrapnel in there as well. So let's be clear, I would have been, when I first set out on my journey in craft beer, I could have done that. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. There, you're absolutely right. There was shrapnel everywhere. So key kegs, kegs are nothing to be messed with. Like mm. do, people do not mess with kegs. They will explode quite violently. Yep. We, we've had quite a few explosion stories in the courtroom in the past. That's um, that's that's one of the, the more interesting ones. The fact that it happened twice. <laughs> <laughs> in one week of the same variety of beer. Uh, yeah, it was beautiful. And it was, and not just the same variety of beer, a particularly dark, sticky beer. Oh, someone uh, was getting in there with a scrubbing brush afterwards. And... <laughs> this guy, this guy, yeah. <laughs> um, Brendan, while, while David's having a hay fever episode, um, thunderstorm asthma, it's bad out there tonight. Uh, give us your cool room story, mate. Yeah, so did anyone out there ever go to Josie Bones in Collingwood? Uh, back in the early noughties. We oh, actually yes. had the, talk about Flemken Bowls Club. We had the bloke from Josie Bones come to the Bowls Club. Yeah, I wanted to join him for that. I was busy that day. Mm. Um, it was, uh, that's that's the first time we'd ever lost money as a Bowls Club. <laughs> <laughs> he drank his, uh, his weight in beer. He <laughs> told me about some of the most fantastic chef's knives I've ever heard about. I didn't <laughs> see them. Um, so of a conversation. I worked for them um, from when, when I moved to Melbourne in 2011. I, I joined them as a, as a waiter. Um, I was really keen to learn about beer and food. I had a really big gap in my, um, my knowledge about food matching, having a very narrow uh, upbringing and being mostly vegetarian. So I thought working at Chelsea Bones would really be a really great way to, to learn about uh, a range of really ethical and sustainable um, meats that I'd never never encountered, um, and it, it was incredible. I loved I loved hospitality. I love pairing, so that was a really fun opportunity. Uh, before long, the, the the beer guy left, and I took over as beer manager and, and managed their their cellar, their list, their training and events um, for a couple of years before starting a, a, a brewing company with them called Boneyard Brewing. But during that era of um, running events, we, we partnered a few times with uh, the Royal Agricultural Society celebrating uh, Victorian produce and celebrating award-winning produce. Um, so coming into work one day, we were getting ready for this Taste of Victoria um, award-winning produce uh, celebration. And I went down into our, our very, very small and very hygienic keg cellar um, to check on things and was, uh, was overwhelmed with the, the smell of, of a dry aging Dorper lamb, um, which was sitting on top of my kegs, um, weeks before the event, it was, Oh, that's yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you, you use the, I really want to explain to people who are perhaps, I understand what a Dorper lamb is. Can you, can you explain perhaps what that looks like to the general public? So it's a, Oh, I don't know how it differs. It's from a them. large it's animal. A very big lamb. It's a, a heritage variety. Across your kegs. Quite, quite mature as well. Um, so the more mature the lamb, I guess, the stronger the smell. Um, mm. And as you age lamb, I guess you get more of the lamby flavour. So being, I guess, like having been vegetarian for a very long time and, and being open to, to tasting things, but being quite sensitive, that was that was one of the most confronting smells um, that I'd come across in a long time. And it, it didn't leave the cellar for a long time either, the the lamb spent um, 
at least a week in there before the event. And uh, I don't think it ever really left the room. Oh, that's awesome. That's, I don't think <laughs> we've is. ever had a cool room story like that before, apart from a few other dead animals floating in, uh, in cool rooms in the past. Um, <laughs> we're not going to delve too far into the past. We are going to take a quick break. Um, guys, we really encourage everyone to get up and shake your legs and have a bathroom break and uh, refresh yourselves before coming back. Uh, we got some awesome little beers to taste when we come back. Uh, Warren Wu is going to take us through those and letting letting me steer the ship. But uh, guys, get up and uh, and stretch your legs and have a little bit of a, a quick uh, break, glass of water, and we'll come back refreshed and uh, try yeah, the happen. last of our beers. Welcome back, guys. Uh, we are going to throw over to Mr. Warren Wu, who is going to take us through our last two very special beers. Um, I'm not sure we've ever received a volume of beer from the cool room uh, this small amount. I don't no. know if that's the right way to say it, but no, I think I everyone gets what I'm talking about. Warren, over to you. Yeah, I might quickly paint a picture of that. So in front of most of the people in the cool room um, who, who have the packs, they will have two small, I, th- I guess about 45 mil little tasting bottles of um, two things, one barley apera and the other one uh, Solera stock, which, yeah, fascinating. I don't even know where to start. Like, Brendan, can you, can you give us... Can you give us the rundown on what we have in front, these dark, mysterious liquids that we have in front of us? So I guess uh, for a bit of historical context, the notion of stock ale uh, is a very, very old English uh, brewing tradition where beers were stored, beers were brewed of very high strength with very high bitterness um, to be stored for a long time. Um, They would be used to reduce the acidity of fresh, young, mild beer, uh, because they were so bitter and so alcoholic, they were less prone to uh, to staling or to infection or acidification. Um, but they would, over time, develop um, very, very oxidised flavours as well as potentially um, wild yeast as well. But the, the notion of stock ale is a, a very strong, very bitter beer that you keep in your cellar to, to cut with uh, younger, fresher beers to soften them and to add uh, aged character. Uh, my first... Uh, I guess my, my first experience with something like this was from uh, La Baladin uh, from Italy, the big Xiaoyu. Um, has anyone tried that one? No, to be honest. No. no. Um, it is, it's imported by uh, a local, local to us, at least in Melbourne, a, a company called Anateca Saleno, uh, oh, yeah. Italian company. Um, I believe La Baladin are now owned by um, the multinational conglomerate that runs the world. Um, but I don't think they distribute this beer. I think Anateca Soleno still um, still stock the Xiaoyu, which was named after the brewer Tio Musu's daughter's imaginary daughter, uh, Xiaoyu. Uh, very, very colourful name for, for an imaginary daughter. Um, but he applied that to his beers. And essentially he was, Tio Musu was always brewing beers in Italy to appease a wine palate, to... to try and convert wine drinkers to beer. So his, his brewing style was, was very much uh, influenced by wine. He's in Piedmont in, uh, in Italy. Mm. Um, 
So he came up with this concept of a, of a, a very high alcohol barley wine brewed at very high temperatures, uh, very high alcohol, transferred to tanks and intentionally oxidised. So the finished beer would be pumped full of oxygen um, to encourage that um, tertiary flavour development that, that fortified wines are known for, the, the oxidation of higher alcohols, um, to encourage the prune and the raisin and the fig and the plum um, that, that uh, fortified wines or aged fortified wines are known for. Uh, so he's got a range of those aged in different barrels, um, different ages, different colours. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's a very interesting uh, exploration of, of barley wine uh, from, a, from a wine lens or from a, an Italian wine lens. Um, I, I was selling them, to be honest, at the international beer shop, but no one bought them because they were very, very expensive. Uh, hmm. Small bottles, they were flat, they had wax, they came in boxes. Uh, no, no one knew why they, why they would want to buy this beer. Um, but the revelation for me was when I was working at Josie Bones and having the opportunity to serve this beer by the glass. Um, so to take a, a, a little tulip, a, a small glass, uh, pour some on a sample after dinner while they were either uh, relaxing after dinner or having dessert um, and to give it to them and not tell them what it was and have them, uh, I, I guess, overwhelmed with uh, the, an mm. emotional response um, and be like, wow, what is this? This is incredible. And to explain to them that, that it was beer, for me, it was, it was it was such a win for beer to be able to, to demonstrate those flavours um, from beer was was something that that was really powerful and really something that I strive for in brewing um, and with beer to to try and find a way to to put beer on the dinner table and to to fill blanks in in food. Um, this beer CRU really provided. Um, I, uh, some other um, context, I guess, there's there's beers like Sam Adams Utopias. Um, uh, Americans had an arms race of alcohol where they were trying to ferment the the biggest strongest beers. So Sam Adams was really leading the charge. Um, the oh, I called the um, Dave the the Imperial like the barley wine here of the dog they brewed a really really strong barley wine that's that's sort of still around today that was a flat barley wine and it had really similar flavors over time these mm -hmm. American barley wines developed like a real soy sauce meaty intense oxidized character and over time they've been prized and uh, it's it's something that's really I, I think come back into the the lexicon of barley wine and strong beer, the, the oxidative um, and autolysis aspects, mm -hmm. autolysis being the, the aging and the death of yeast, creating meaty, savory flavors. Um, there's amongst all the shit talk in the chat, occasionally there's some nice questions that come out of it and Jacob's throwing one up for us. Um, should we try blending this stock, the stock beer, the Solera stock, with another beer like is that something we should give a shot and have you guys tried it and what happened i haven't have you jeff yeah i'd love to jump in here I, it's not something i've actually tried and um in learning about beer and studying beer the the concept of stock ales and you know people from time going gone by going into a venue and um, going up to the bar person and asking them for their own preferred blend between old and stale beer, because they used to call it stale beer and it wasn't a loaded term that meant something negative. It was just part of the blend. Um, so they used to go in and ask for their own personal preference of new and old beer. And the idea, as Brendan alluded to, is that light freshness, 
um, of the young beer and then the aged beer adding a little bit of depth and complexity to that beer. Um, and each part of each part of that beer probably not enjoyable on its own, but in that blend together is absolutely amazing. Um, I actually haven't tried it with our stock ale because I feel like our stock ale, it, it's actually a really special beer that stands on its own. But now that we're having this conversation, it's something I'd, I'm really keen to, to try. Uh, Jacob asked me in the chat, um, what would you blend it with and, um, mm. and in what kind of proportions? And, and my guess, and this is based on a guess, and I'd, I'd love to hear Brendan's view about this as well. I would have thought you'd blend it with the least hoppy pale ale that you have. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I was thinking lager even, like genuinely, just like what are you doing? Yeah, yeah la That's a lager where my brain went. A lager like, might work, but it, a lager is unlikely to be the beer that these would have been traditionally blended with. Mm. Um, there wouldn't have been lagers available, I think, in the places that this tradition existed. Um, mm. So I would have thought some some kind of pale ale, no low low hop flavor and aroma um, would have been my guess, and and then I would have guessed a, a proportion of perhaps eighty pale ale to twenty stock ale, and that's just a guess. What do you reckon, Brendan? I've actually, yeah, recently we've tried blending it with Imperial Stouts as part of like component blends to see if mm. we create something really exciting along that spectrum, but it, it hasn't really worked out. I think something like a Scottish um, 60, 70, 80 shilling or strong ale would be the, the best place for it where you really can showcase and celebrate that aged and oxidised and multi-character without without distraction um, and where that, that slight hint of caramel and toast and oxidation is really appropriate. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, probably something we should embrace a bit more the actual actually the first beer that we blended this with was the very first wild ravens release the wild ravens um old brown ale um which we released i think in 2016 it was a a, a flanders style red ale blended with a portion of this beer um there's been a few questions about this beer specifically and 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 the apera um so if you don't mind i'll touch on a bit about mm. how the beer yeah. came out and where it started so when i joined three ravens there was um, a beer that Adrian McNulty, our former brewer, who is senior brewer um, and experimental brewer at Moondog, um, responsible for that, uh, some of the really zany, wacky beers that you'll probably be tasting pretty soon. Um, he had brewed a beer to celebrate our 10th anniversary um, in 2012, ready for 2013. It was a Imperial IPA, uh, which was pretty extreme at the time. I, I don't know anyone else really that was brewing Imperial IPAs, maybe Murray's. Um, the only problem, and it was meant to be 10%, but the only problem was it finished fermenting at 9.6%. Um, so in an attempt to get that beer up to 10%, he put some lager yeast and some simple sugar, some dextrose in it, wheeled it into our cool room, um, hoping that it would get to 10%, um, but it didn't. Um, it stayed there exactly where he left it. And when I joined the company in 2014, a couple of years later, it was exactly the same gravity, the exact same pH, but it had developed oh, yeah. a really cool sherry-like character, which reminded me immediately of the Paladin Xiaoyu. Um, so my eyes lit up and I, I thought this has a lot of potential. He, he was just showing me around, this is all yours now, do with it whatever you want. Um, and I was super excited about this tank of um, oxidized Imperial IPA. Um, because for me, it had a lot of potential for us to entertain that, um, that aspect of beer and that aspect of food pairing that I thought wasn't really being done in Australia or hadn't really been explored that much, that pushing the boundaries of food pairing um, and exploring those flavours that hadn't really been promoted or developed. 
Um, so over time, we've bottled some off for a Could Be A Week event with um, a restaurant on uh, Smith Street um, for an event, a uh, fine dining event. Um, and we presented it after dinner. Uh, we'd, put, we'd called it La Oloroso Cerveza um, after the, the you know, Ol- Olorosa wine, the scented aromatic wine. And um, at the start of the night, the uh, sommelier um, accosted me and had abused me for using the terms uh, Oloroso because it's apparently protected and means a certain thing with floor and um, this and that. And it was, yeah, it was really, it was really affronted by what I'd done. Um, but by the end of the night, when we poured the beer, um, he loved it. He came up to me and he wanted to buy more of it because he'd been looking for something to pair with their chocolate orange tart um, on their pairing menu and nothing mm. worked. Um, but he found that this beer was perfect for that. So for me, that was that gave me confidence to, to continue doing what we were doing. And there was that there was a home for this product if we could find people um, like that, that that wanted to celebrate pairing and, and those types of flavors. Um, so we've kept it going. Max Allen was also really excited about it. He came in to our brewery in 2017. He's a, he's a, a, That's a, awesome. yeah. a wine and beer writer, a really, really cool guy. But at the time he was researching the history of alcohol in Australia. So for him, I think it was an insight into what beer tasted like or what some aspects of beer tasted like historically. Um, and he loved that it tasted like Vegemite um, and had really fascinating um, characteristics. So I guess those two experiences gave me the confidence to continue with it, regardless of whether or not it was selling. Um, so we persisted. I, I, every for, for a couple of years, we were brewing a barley wine every year um, using house malted barley, um, Australian hops, and some toasted malts. Um, and a portion of that barrel aged or that, that oxidized beer would go into the fresh beer. And then some of that beer would go back into barrels. The plan being every year, we would draw down some of that barrel aged stock to go into the next barley wine. Um, and then a portion of that barley wine would go back into the barrels to produce an increasingly aged product. Um, after three years of making barley wine, we realized that no one actually drinks barley wine. Um, and it was a really, really hard slog. Um, but we've kept it going on a much, much smaller scale. Um, and these, these products, I guess, are the evolution of where that, where that program went. Um, being barley mid- wine's awesome, man. Listen, sooner or later, people will come around to it and you'll make a fortune. Oh, it's like, you know, um, uh, Calvados. It's, you know, something you just fill your cellar with until it's a commodity and someone's, surely someone's going to pay, uh, pay thousands of dollars for it one yeah. day. Yeah. No, that never happens. And we say this every, in the wine industry, we say this every, about everything. Like, technically, Rutherglen Musket should be... Killjoy Warren. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to be that Killjoy. Um, Because, like, we've been saying, Australians have been saying this about Rutherglen Muskets for, for like, decades. Um, They should be the most revered wines in the world. But, nope, they're just, and they're a bargain. Like, they're, they're a considering how how well they're rated amongst lots of people and it's like it's similar to these things and i see some similarities in in both of these um they're amazing so like in in this respect and i suppose this is more of a question for jeff um what like what given they don't sell what does like the barley wine do for your brand what what is what is its its role in the whole um, in in three ravens and what they do, I think I feel like it's it's really important for us actually. So 
even though, uh, look, I'm a lover of barley wines and everything that Brendan just said there, um, barley wines are extremely difficult to sell as a sales rep on a, on a large volume basis. There's, I think there's a, a lot of people who really love barley wines and then a lot of people who just do not have an interest in it. So it's an interesting thing. But I think if you're asking about rather than barley wine, the Stockale and the, um, and the Bali Apera here, what they do for our brand, I think it's a really important thing where it's in terms of our products, they're the sorts of things that um, are best understood through communication. So when the opportunity to include them on tonight's line, lineup came up, the opportunity for people to taste these products as we explain them to them uh, and for people to be able to taste them and get the full story about the process behind these particular products, I, I feel like that's when they're the most appreciated. Uh, and so people really like, okay, cool. Because if, you know, if you just put that glass in front of someone, no story, it's an, in, an entirely different experience. But to, to understand the, um, just the amount of process that goes into these sorts of products, the amount of care that Brendan takes, the amount of forethought that Brendan puts into these sorts of products, I feel like people understand them a lot better. Um, to your question about what do they do for our brand, I think it's the opportunity to talk about um, just how developed the craft of brewing um, that Brendan possesses and that he really is able to put into our products. So uh, there's a lot of forethought. There's a lot of, you know, I would, I would say even something like today where, we were talking to a customer about a particular product that we made for them. And then Brendan described in the process that he anticipated that products that he was adding later to the beer would add bitterness to that product. So the original beer that he produced to blend those products in was of a lower bitterness. And it's, you know, it's that kind of craft, it's that forethought, it's that care um, that Brendan puts into the beer. And for these particular products, he does that sort of thing with and to be able to communicate it to people it's a really fun part of my job that's that sounds great jeff i completely yeah completely understand where you're coming from um so i've got a couple more questions but this one actually relates to one of our uh one of our chat room um questions and so shannon's Shannon threw a question in the chat room. I'll get him to unmute and ask now because it kind of it kind of ties into to kind of what you guys have up your sleeve and what you're doing for the future. So, hey, Shannon, if you've got a moment, if you if you can hear me, um, yeah, can you unmute and ask your question? Um, my question it's it's sort of in two parts. One, the first bit of it's Brendan. I've come across you a bit in beer groups. Um, which fascinated me because there's not many brewers that sort of get involved in the beer groups. Um, and I think where that first occurred was around your, your NatRav releases. Um, and there was a lot of conversation a couple of years ago about them being in clear bottles. Um, and, you know, and, and I think you were suggesting that you were kind of looking for that, that light strike type of, you know, to see what would happen when you're putting this stuff in clear bottles. Um, so I'm interested in where that program is at now, what you've learned from that, where that's going, and also just in terms of where your beer, you're involved in the beer groups. Is that from an education purpose? Um, seeing that yeah, to be to be honest, Shannon, like it's 
uh, I've always loved beer. I've always loved talking about beer and sharing that enthusiasm for beer. So I try, I've always found myself drawn to people that want to share that enthusiasm, whether it was beer advocate or um, forums or groups or channels, um, just wanting to share that enthusiasm and talk to people about uh, similar things, homebrew, you know, homebrew clubs, um, homebrew groups, just wanting to expand my knowledge and learn more through sharing ideas and, and getting feedback from other people. Um, the reason I guess we we shift towards the clear glass for the NatRav was uh, a sense of funk and nostalgia. Uh, it made it was it was partly driven by trends and a, a, an aesthetic that we'd seen in the natural wine world of of showcasing the color of uh, of wine, um, sort of a modern uh, modern shift towards uh, wine packaging. I I knew, you know, I always knew that um, I wanted to make wine beers. You know, reading about driven lambic as a teenager was it made so much sense in Australia. Um, I'd kind of kept it in my back pocket for a long time, like uh, you know, planning to do it when I retired, but recognised that other people were looking at doing it, so I thought we'd better start doing it at Three Ravens as well. But it just made sense to showcase the colour um, as well as uh, being disruptive and being challenging and and um, showcasing an element of beer that that I remember quite fondly growing up drinking uh, Grolsch was one of my favourites um, in my youth. Um, uh, Bex as well, I guess, to a degree. And, and then things like um, Saison de Pont and Cantillon um, would inevitably be skunked. You know, the, the first time I drank um, Saison de Pont out of a, on draft at the Salon Anchor, I was really confused because uh, it didn't taste like Saison de Pont because um, it wasn't light struck. Um, so for me, that, that light struck character was a really important aspect of farmhouse beer. Um, and, you know, it's, it's only a fault if it's unintentional. Um, so to, to celebrate and champion that light struck character for me was part of, of the, the character of these products and, and championing them and, and showcasing them. These, these beers are, while they do showcase grapes, they are generally really heavily hopped um, from the brewing side. We use a heap of aged hops in the production of, of most of our wild beer. Um, so they will develop light strong character. And to me, that's something that we're leaning into um, and uh, celebrating as a, as a component of funk or as an aspect of the, the character that will change over time. And I think the change is as exciting as, um, as a beer is fresh. You know, the, the journey of how beers evolve, the, the romanticism of wild beer is, is massive. So uh, light strike and, and, you know, adding to that evolution is also, I think, really fun. Um, so it was aesthetic as well as really, you know, leading into that, the, the flavor and aroma that I, I really love about Farmhouse Beer. Brendan, I, I remember trying the Riesling uh, a while ago and that was, that was, um, yeah, that was pretty mind blowing. The, the, I think it was on Riesling. Yeah. It was on Riesling skins. It was yeah. three Riesling releases. We did. Um, I think uh, it was the second one. Yeah. Must was have been. The glass or brown, Warren? Big button. Was it in clear or brown glass? I, I reckon we- it was in clear glass. Yeah, yeah, maybe it was in clear glass. Brendan, yes. Brendan, not everyone might know what that rav is. So oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah, and that's yeah, that's why we should. Yeah, good point, Jeff. Well, yeah, that- so let's let's quickly discuss the net rav and and specifically like what what the ca- 20, 2021 Cabernet Franc and where that sits amongst all of this. Whoa, look at that oh, bottle. And off really if I want to showcase this, but 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. Windows ninety five. Get around it. <laughs> it is very Windows ninety five. Um, this stuff so works really well on a podcast. Probably two thousand and seventeen. I think might have been the first vintage of of grapes we got. Um, but the inspired by Druven Lambic, the, the the Belgians they would get um, Italian and French grapes being very close. Refermented them in Lambic, um, and uh, had this very very small small batch. Uh, variation of lambic um but reading more you know growing up reading about lambic and the the maceration of fruit um the lambic producers would say that the second maceration on fruit would be even better than the first because the first maceration would be all about getting you know this is things like raspberries and cherries and the first maceration would get all the sugar out which would essentially dilute the beer Um, the second maceration which they always did because they were um, poor and needed to extract as much out of everything they spent money on would be more intense in terms of fruit character because the the leftover skins and seeds were where the aroma, flavour and character was at. So uh, trying to find avenues for us to source grapes, um, it made a lot more sense for me to approach winemakers and ask them for their pressings or their mark or, or you know, rather than asking them for grapes, um, wine, winemakers would typically, if, if they're pressing fruit fresh, would the, the grapes would go back on the compost heap or it was mm. essentially a waste product. And that, that, to me, that made sense in terms of process and flavor and, uh, you know, having, having seen things like the, um, the red Angus Pilsner, which was made with Riesling juice, mm-hmm. not tasting like much. It didn't taste like Riesling. It didn't taste like beer. It was just a watery mess. Um, and a few other similar products that, that used juice or fruit, they didn't really showcase the beer. They didn't showcase the fruit. So for me, it made sense to use the the skins. Um, and I guess the the convenient thing was the rise or proliferation of, of skin contact wines, where white wines were being aged on skins. So that terminology and the the popularity in in and of itself made it easier for us to communicate what we were doing or what I wanted to do um, and make it marketable and also bring winemakers into beer and beer drinkers into natural wine, which I thought I always thought was really natural connection. Um, it's it's yeah. products that people just hadn't been exposed to uh, both ways. Um, so for me, it was a really a cool opportunity for us to, to bring those two products together. So originally we'd brewed some skin contact beers under the wild Ravens range, but um, given they were so different and so distinct, we thought it was worth creating uh, a separate series, uh, which we dubbed NatRav or short for natural Ravens. Um, or nat, you know, natty wines, um, which would be packaged like a natural wine would, or like a skin contact wine would, um, using similar, um, you know, language, but and packaging, but really confronting um, design. So uh, design that reflected and represented the products being really disruptive and different. And our designer really leaned into the idea of creating labels that made him uncomfortable, that challenged all of his design conventions. Um, and you know, the norms of, of label design and spelling and spacing. And uh, it's been really fun. Like, uh, I think we've got a really great designer and allowing him to, to have creative outlet has also been a really productive and positive thing for our business. Um, so that, the, yeah, that, that's awesome, man. Um, we're we're going to, th- you guys have been super generous with your time tonight. We know we're, we're getting on to the, the two hour mark of the record. Um, we're going to throw to a couple more people in the Zoom room and then we're going to wrap things up. So I'm going to throw to Muggs, who had a question. Where are you in my screen? There you are. Muggs, over you. Oh, thanks, Trev. Um, hi, guys. Um, one of my 
favourite beers from you guys, and I think it probably had a bit of a long history, was the um, the Druid. And um, it's definitely um, yeah, it's part of your barrel barrel series. And um, look, you've basically combined possibly my favourite <laughs> style of barrel with my favourite style of beer. I mean, how did that all come about? Like, how do you... I mean, it's, it's sort of a natural progression to go with those sort of things, but how did you end up coming in, you know, to that sort of conclusion with things? Yeah, I, I agree. The PX is such an incredible wine, um, and I, I have always really loved Belgian Strong Dark Ales. Before, you know, Imperial IPA existed, that was the Bozo beer. That was what you went to if you wanted a, a high ABV, 750 mil. Um the, the relationship with Mount Langy Giron came about um, uh, with our general manager who was friends with the, the sales manager for Mount Langy um, and they uh, just through, through their, their friendship um, and their involvement in events with each other, um, they offered us some of their Pedro Jimenez barrels that, were, that they were emptying. Um, so our brewer at the time, um, Adrian, designed a beer to emulate the characteristics of that wine, the Pedro Jimenez style um, Shiraz. Or the, the the wine based on that um, that fruit. Um, so the obvious style was Belgian strong dark ale. Um, so there was one one batch of beer that went into those barrels, and it happened to help us win uh, champion small brewery at the Australian International Beer Awards in two thousand and fourteen. So there was immediately a very uh, high demand for that product, and it was it was very sweet. It was very lush. It had a heap of that PX character as well as sweetness. Um, and I joined the team shortly after that. Um, that uh, winning of the prize um, and being such a fan of those those styles, um, I was it was an honour for me to continue that um, that series. Um, we we used the same barrels again, which wasn't really to the um, to the benefit of the second batch of beer, but I also wanted to make it really dry and lean and more traditional, like a like a proper um, Belgian strong dark ale as opposed to an American style quadruple. Um, over time, we pushed it back up to the, the sweet American style in um, fresh PX barrels. We used some uh, Shiraz port barrels at some point. Um, we used some Pinot barrels. Um, the final iteration we did, which was the fifth version, was aged in um, uh, whiskey barrels from Starwood. Uh, that was the 2018 uh, Druid, batch five, um, which was incredible and delicious, but those styles just lost, in, they lost vogue, they lost interest. No one wanted to drink Belgian Strong Dark Ales as much as people like you and me, Muggs, love, love drinking them and love those flavours. Um, they yeah, just weren't, so. yeah. they weren't selling. So we, we ended up with that last batch of beer for about 18 months, which was just, you know, wow. tying up pallet space in a cold warehouse that we were paying storage fees on. So it just didn't, didn't add up for us to continue brewing the Druid. Uh, it's something that I'd love to brew again one day, and we've we've considered doing wild versions or wild ravers versions, or I don't know if if those styles increase in popularity, if, or if we can find a market to to oh, sell. I've got to say, if you can find some more decent Pedro barrels as well, because that seems to seem seems to be a really um big marketing point. There's only um, there's only so much being produced and drunk. Oh yeah, that's it. Yeah. World, so um, Moondog actually, you know, um, took that contact and brewed. Uh, some uh, what was it? Iron lung um, in Pedro barrel and yep. mm. black lung, yeah, mm. yep. black lung, yeah. Um, 
Muggsy, I'm going to mute you now. We've got one last question from our friend Max Barker in the call room. And then we're going to wrap this baby up. Uh, Max, over to you. Thanks, Travis. Um, kind of a slightly two-part question. Um, I guess the more like a straightforward uh, part of the question is when you, you're making a lot of your old recipes uh, at the moment for your anniversary, I was wondering kind of like when you go back and you make those older recipes um, with your, your newer insights and newer equipment and newer kind of, you know, just knowledge, how much has that changed the outcome of the beer? I guess sort of secondary to that is like, um, you know, everyone's tastes can change so much in a year, let alone you know, 10, 12, 15 years. Um, how much do you think the kind of the, the beer you're making now maybe, maybe matches up or is similar to the beer that you enjoyed or you thought you tasted? Are they the same beers in your mind or is it, are they kind of separate beasts? Do you want to take the first part of that, Brendan? And I'm happy to take the second part. Um, what was the first part again? I got the context of the whole question there. So the, uh, the first part was like, um, just on a, on a technical level, like uh, when you're making older recipes again. Oh yeah. New equipment, new processes, new understandings. How much does that change? It's just about distilling the essence of what what made those beers unique, like what their what their key features were, and and championing those while not trying to necessarily replicate everything about the beer that that might might have been positive or negative. It was about kind of taking what the spirit of the beer was and why it was brewed and what it was, what its intent was and championing that with our new process. Like obviously our, our process has changed a lot. We don't filter, we don't bottle condition, um, raw materials, uh, processing aids, uh, approach to brewing has changed a lot. Um, so we're trying to brew the best possible beer we can um, in the context of what, what's available to us. But so we're not going to revert to older older processes or um, older methods um, for the sake of tradition. Um, we'll we'll celebrate the elements that we think are important or that are um, critical to making that beer taste like it's what it was brewed for. Um, like trying to trying to look at its intent rather than its execution or its end result. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the point Brendan's making there is that really tastes change. I feel like I was at an event, uh, must be a couple of years ago, at the local tap house where uh, they were celebrating their first tap lists from when they opened up. And they invited brewers to rebrew their recipes um, and recipes that everyone in the room recalled blew their minds when they tasted them 10 years prior. Jamison Beast. Uh, it was, and yeah, yeah. like Jamison the Beast, when you're tasting it, you're like, hang on a minute. But those... It, it, it shows the evolution of the industry over the last 10 years where uh, brewers have got a lot better at what they do. Um, people's expectations of the intensity of hot flavour and aroma have changed. All sorts of things have changed. And I think what Brendan's talking about with the rebrews of our beers, and I think it's the right approach is to, to, to attempt to harness the spirit of a beer, but make it recognisable and relevant to a modern palate. That's great. It's a really good answer. Thank you. It makes total sense. That's, yeah, really cool. Um, guys, we are about to wrap things up. Um, sometimes we don't get to, to go through all the questions in the Zoom room because we just run out of time. Um, the guys, hopefully, like some of our brewers do, host the record, hang around afterwards, 
and uh, you get to sit around in the Zoom room and have a drink and ask a few questions and enjoy the night away. Even though we're out of lockdown, we are all going to sit around and have a drink for the rest of the night, um, even though I feel like we've all had quite a few drinks this evening. <laughs> um, Jeff and Brendan, you guys have been awesome with your time it's, and, and so informative on, on what you've spoken mm-hmm. about. It's... it's um, like I said at the beginning of this, it's amazing that 109 episodes, and this is the first time we've had you on, um, but it, it's been awesome. And to listen to those tales, Jeff, of you and David in your in your younger days, carrying on, uh, I feel like we could do an entire episode with you two just talking about that stuff, but um, there might be <laughs> lawsuits and other things. Yeah. <laughs> um, guys, make sure you, you check out the socials, like we said at the beginning of the episode, for the November packs. Uh, they are selling fast. We have our homebrew session coming up on the 11th of November. Um, we've got some really cool, cool rumors that have brewed us beer uh, that we are all going to sit around and taste. Uh, on that night, we've also got uh, our good friend Tim from Co-Conspirators that's going to join us in the room and critique the brewers' beers as well. So it's going to be a very interesting night. Unfortunately, all those packs are sold out. Um, but if any more come available, we will let you all know via the social media. So make sure you keep your eye on the Cool Room Facebook page. Um, Jeff, Brendan, you guys have been awesome. Uh, David is sitting there clapping because it's been a great night. Mm-hmm. Uh, hang around, have a drink with everyone. Thank you very much for your time, guys. Thanks, Travis. And yeah, I'll stick around. I think there's a few questions that we didn't get to, so I'll definitely uh, aim to address those. Thanks for having us, guys. Thanks for having us, guys. It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure. Uh, Thank you. Cheers.